This is Americana Podcast, the 51st state. trying to create a bullet point list of what makes Americana music what it is, the absolute hallmark would have to be the art of storytelling. So much music in both the historical and contemporary chapters of the genre rely so heavily on realistic as well as fictionalized narratives strung together by a rhyme scheme and a melody. Songs that are embedded in our musical memory such as The Highwayman by Jimmy Webb, Poncho and Lefty by Towns Van Zandt, Jolene by Dolly Parton, as well as newer songs that are beginning to creep into our cultural repertoire, like Jason Isbell's Cover Me Up. Storytelling is as old as communal language itself, and songwriters are an extension of the great tradition of sharing experience through words. And Americana music is as loyal to that part of our history as it is dedicated to continuing to share those experiences between artists and listeners. Possibly one of the most talented of those writers working now is Todd Snyder, Originally born in Portland, Oregon, Snyder hopped around from place to place at a young age before finally landing in Austin, Texas. After seeing the late Jerry Jeff Walker play, Snyder was inspired to also take up music full-time. Since then, Snyder has created his own unique space within music, developing simple but striking musical arrangements that are punctuated with poignant lyrics, words and stories that will either make you laugh, cry, or just really think critically about your place in the world writing everything from experiences with drug use, life on the road, to the great American protest song, Todd Snyder is really one of the best representations of exceptional storytelling in music. So join us today as our host, Robert Earl Keane, speaks with Todd Snyder about his songwriting, experiences on the road, his book, I Never Met a Story I Didn't Like, and so much more on our last show of 2020. I'm your producer, Clara Rose, and this is Americana Podcast, The 51st State. I know, I know I am an old-timer, old-timer, it's too late to die young now, old-timer, five and dimer, trying to find a way to age like wine somehow. Hello everyone, I'm Robert Earl Keen, and you're listening to Americana Podcast, The 51st State. And today we have the incomparable Todd Snyder. So um, let me just jump right in, Todd. And, um, you know, I uh, read your uh, book a couple of times, as a matter of fact. And and, uh, this is the line that I came up with. You live a carefully orchestrated sequence of random events. And and based on that, um, I want to ask you about... Uh, Occupy Cheatham Street. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't get enough credit for that. <laughs> I, th- I thought we turned the economy around with that. Um, <laughs> I was 
I was right when they were doing Occupy Wall Street, right? And right. I had three days off, and Kent had just passed away, Kent Finley, and I had three days off in Texas. So I thought, well, I'll park in front of Cheatham. And then as we were sitting there, I got this idea that we could do Occupy Cheatham Street, you know? And then, so I announced it, uh, like on the computer, and um, all of a sudden I said, um, I, I told everyone to come, and all of a sudden these hippies started coming out of the woodwork, and I said, let's build a fort next to the bus. And so they did. <laughs> <laughs> they did. And I kept saying, bring, bring this and bring some other shit, and people just kept coming with stuff. It went on for three days. I said, somebody bring a cow down. And somebody, they brought a longhorn steer. I got to ride it. Um, <laughs> so, and then when it was a guitar pull that went on around the clock outside of the bus. I would have my window open. And I could hear those kids going all night. And um, I think you kept bringing beer for everybody. Right, right. And, yeah. uh, and then uh, Sterling got this notion that we could kidnap the mayor and figure out why later. So <laughs> we kidnapped him. And then he came down to the bus and we let him go at like seven, but he stayed till like midnight. And um, that was a fun, fun party. I don't think we accomplished anything. I think the goal was to get politicians to be uh, cooler. Uh huh. That's and, not and, too much to ask. And you, and you, you really kidnapped the mayor. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Nice. He no got, ransom he, or anything. I mean, in, no. in, in light of like Occupy Wall Street, there was really no real monetary yeah. reward, right? No goal. No goal, right? Yeah. No goal. I've never had those, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but when we, uh, yeah, Sterling just conv conv was convinced it would be okay, so we went into the mayor's office and told him we were kidnapping him, and he was into it. Ah. Nice. Yeah, so he came down and we got him drunk on the bus and he made a speech. And uh and uh, yeah, he he had a good time, I think. I found out I think Sterling knew him from high mm -hmm. school or something. Ster Sterling being uh Kent's son, right? Yeah, Kent's son, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he talked me into it and and then I I knew he knew in advance it would be okay. He was like, "We well, just go in there and tell him we're kidnapping him and he'll come." It worked. I don't know yeah. what the point was. He agreed to be cooler. Yeah, you mean the mayor did? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he sounds pretty cool. Just anyway. across the board, anyway. Yeah, right. That was right. a big hang-up for us because once we once we met him and he was cool. <laughs> <laughs> this we, is going the wrong way. Yeah, we we tried to reassess our platform at that point, but it was already too far gone. Yeah, man. Stan Marcus, Texas. Yeah, I didn't get in any trouble. And then, man, I remember I started playing these gigs. This is true. My, one of my favorite memories is, like, I played Cheatham, and there was all this party going on across the street of all these kids that couldn't get in. They were just drinking that beer you brought and playing and singing. And when the show got over, the long, you call it a longhorn, you know, it's got the horns on it, the bull. Right. It was, like, asleep against the fence next to the bus and this young hippie girl was asleep against the bull and i i just thought what a what a surreal situation <laughs> i laid down there and had my picture made with them both and the girl woke up what a party nice 
Nice. Yeah. 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 And, and Kent, Kent, Kent Finley was one of your early mentors, right? <laughs> yeah. Making a difference. Uh, yes. Man, I love him. I've been talking to his ex-wife, Diana, a lot lately. He was m- my first person to turn me on to you and everybody else. You know, he was my gateway to all these hotel rooms. So let, let me, let's talk about the book. Uh, I never met a story I didn't like, uh, mostly true tall tales. Uh, you wrote with Peter Cooper, correct? Yeah, yeah. You, you give Peter a lot of credit here about like he did almost all the work. Is that really, is that really how it went? Yeah, he, he um, just interviewed me and kind of wrote it in, um, as we were going, he would just go like, okay, well, tell me about Jerry Jeff. Tell me about Buffett. And I'd get going. And yeah, he, not only that, but he helped me process some of that stuff as I was bringing it up. And it was like, in a lot of ways, I kind of come off as a better person than I even am because as I'm working out the book, he's helping me to see stuff like, oh, yeah, I guess I was kind of dicky me to take that guy's car and just wreck it. But, you know, <laughs> but for, you know, I didn't, you know, it helped me to help me to uh, have some uh, perspective, I guess, on how much people had helped me and those types of things. I have to say, uh, Todd, when I read this book, I have a hard time going to sleep because I've known you for a long time. I can't get your voice out of my head because <laughs> I mean, it is so solidly you and the way it's, you know, presented and, and how you, and how you, uh, you know, uh, tell a story, but not only tell a story, just, just, you know, just talk about your life in general and, uh, you know, a lot of fun. So anyone that's interested in Todd Snyder should definitely pick up this book because it's a great, great read and, and a, and a lot of fun. And But there were things like there were insights that I got that I, uh, you know, um, sort of, you know, sort of uh, heartfelt kind of things about how you have such great respect for some really, uh, you know, uh, I would say just mega artists and music movers and shakers uh, like Jimmy Buffett and uh, Hunter S Thompson, yeah. Garth Brooks and, um, and how you kind of, kind of put them almost like they're in a different species. Like they're some kind of badass water Buffalo. And, uh, <laughs> and, and where you, where you look at them, like you don't look at them, like you're afraid of them or you don't look at like, um, like they're, some kind of threat or something you look at them for like what they are. And then you have this like, you know, genuine outpouring of respect for them. And you go on a, a lot about Bob Mercer, whom I, yeah. I don't know. And I was wondering if you could tell us about Bob, man, I'll tell he, his whole career started. He was, he got traded from a potato chip company to EMI to be a book to do their books and the Beatles, well, whatever label had the Beatles and the Beatles didn't want to record. They were kind of pulling a strike and Bob Mercer was the youngest guy at the company. So the president sent the youngest guy they had to figure out what the Beatles wanted and what they wanted was to record at night and not have to wear ties. But all of a sudden, Bob was the they, his funeral. These all these old guys were saying this. Bob was the first A and R guy, and his really? job was to make the Beatles happy. And then he got to be like the president. Eventually, he signed the Sex Pistols. Sid Vicious spit on him. He's the guy Sid Vicious spit on. And he was um, a Jimmy Buffett's running buddy, and he took over Margaritaville and signed me. 
and always encouraged me to do whatever I wanted. And he was the president of the company, you know. Even if I'd get in trouble, he just never cared. And I always was like a muse to me. And and um, we listened to tons of records together. And and like he kind of was my my audience. Like the you know, do you have do you have any people where you're working on your record and you're like I'm an audience of one sometimes. Uh-huh. I'd just be thinking about that one guy. He um he was the most artistic um type of uh, like he was he he didn't play or sing or anything, but he he was just a he was a record man. But uh he just was a wide open free spirit and and uh wasn't afraid to put his money where his mouth was and and, and got me he really took care of me in my life. I don't know why he thought I was so funny, but uh, he always was protecting me and he got me like when I was on MCA and then I went back to MCA, he got all this, like what, you know, all the shit you have to give away. I got a bunch of it back and like, um, I got to control my greatest hits record, but man, the guy was like Arthur. Remember that movie, Arthur? Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. He was just fucked up all the time, but he was running that business. He drove a thousand miles an hour drunk wherever he went. I never gave a shit. But he knew his music, man. And um, there was, the, you know, he even would try to encourage me to act out sometimes. And Really? Uh-huh. Or In what way? He, oh, he'd like, uh, he like would tell me uh, uh, some festival, like if, if I was uh, complaining about the way I was being. I remember one time we were being treated poorly at a festival and he said, well, tell the crowd, you know. And uh, it just turned into a fiasco. And he loved it. Just little stuff like that. When he'd hear, he was the president, but he, for some reason, if he found out I didn't make it to a show, he thought that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't always get that reaction from the other water buffalo, so. No, none of the other one. <laughs> but I love that you say I did try. You know what's true is I, when I got the chance to make that book, too, I remember telling Peter, it's like, I never got ripped off and there wasn't anybody that wasn't cool to me. So I don't want to have any of that in here, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it shows, it's, like I said, it's a total pleasure to read. A man once said that the pinnacle of success was when you finally lost interest in money, compliments, publicity. Many years later, another man will say all that again, but not for the sake of inspiring men, but rather cause he got nine songs and knows he needs at least ten. Before you can go back to town and turn them all in to get the money, you guessed it, the compliment. And um, another thing that I, I picked up is, and I, I knew this anyway, Todd, but uh, you are such an incredible student of the craft of songwriting and uh i just wanted to ask you uh, i have to refer to uh, the songwriter frank lesser uh one of his routines was to get up at four in the morning and he wrote till about 10 in the morning and then did the you know went back to sleep and um and, and i know that you're like you're an early riser so that's why i bring yeah. that up so yeah so uh can you give me a little bit of insight into your process you just your genuine day process to like write a song yeah um i go i usually get up like at five and that's what i do like right before the sun comes up i just naturally get up even if i went to bed at one i get up at five 
and then I'll work on songs kind of compulsively. I smoke. I wake up and start chugging coffee and smoking pot till I'm just shaking, and <laughs> <laughs> and I just chip away at songs, you know. And then I take a nap, and then I just go out looking for them later that day, you know, or go out trying to live them. I don't do that like I used to, but I used to like wake up really early, work on songs, then go back to bed, and then wake up and head down to the bars and try to instigate stuff or try to get people acting out, you know, and anytime someone's leaning towards acting out, be the person who says, yeah, do it, do it. (laughs) You're either the the enabled or the enabler, right? Yeah. 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 Trying to stir the soup, make it rhyme later. Yeah. There you go. Uh, (laughs) So you kind of uh, touched on this when you were talking about the book, but as someone who's processed both grief and hardship, Quite openly in their work, is songwriting an actively therapeutic process? God, this is crazy. Uh, I'm like, I, I just am. <laughs> I am grateful to be having this conversation with you. I want to ask you all this shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well, yeah. For me, that's how it started. Uh, was um, um, is this uh, almost like a, a journal or a meditate, uh, some place where you could go get the last word? Or, uh, you know, uh, the girl kind of go, go just sing it out, you know, mm-hmm. sit in your room and sing it out. And it, and it became like, if I, yeah, if I didn't feel like someone was treating me right or, or I maybe have some fancy about saying all the right things to somebody or just sit in my room and sing. And then, um, then I started realizing that, you know, that was, those were like, you'd call that a new song, you know. But I didn't really know that until I met Kent. And then he was like, these are songs. There's people that that's all they do is write songs. I was kind of, I didn't really know him much. Like, I didn't know Chris Christopherson or Bobby McGee or any of that when I was uh-huh. 19. Right, right. And so is there a time when um, this becomes internal and it's a subconscious process and you finish a song and then you go, hey, I know what this is about, you know, it's, it's not, you know, it's not obviously pointed, but you, you're saying yeah. something. Uh-huh. A lot of times it's done. I, do you do that too? You go like, Oh, uh-huh. I get what I was doing. Yeah. Just let <laughs> it out. Kind of frightening. <laughs> yeah. I sometimes go, Oh <laughs> shit. Yeah. Sometimes I just like try to get out of the thing's way and then listen to it later and, and go, Oh wow. In fact, when I listen to the, I didn't like I just went through a divorce and during that time I was making up songs for the hardworking Americans and and then after the divorce I heard that record and I was like how did you not hear see it coming it's all over this record you know but I like it as a therapeutic thing I'm my in fact my goal when I started was that I never wanted to to lose that part of it and that if I did then then I should stop doing it as a, as you know for for money if it doesn't help you, you know, if it doesn't help process grief or if it doesn't help you celebrate, if it's just no longer doing that first thing it did, like if I don't, if I'm not still into doing it, like at a campfire, then I don't suppose I would, I don't know if I'd go out and do it on the road. Oh, that's a good test. I like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Always seem to know for sure now is how we can't go on like this day after day. 
It's just like overnight Day after day It's just like overnight So you've written everything from drug abuse to great American protest songs, inherently encapsulating much of what is almost expected of American songwriter experience whilst not letting any particular subject dominate your discography. Oh, man. How do you go about approaching such difficult subjects without relying heavily on one single issue in particular? Wow. God, man, that just makes me feel so. Uh, that was great. Oh man, I didn't know I was doing any of that. Uh, <laughs> that makes me feel really good. You know, um, that's a good question because I don't know. You know, I didn't even. It makes me feel good to hear you say that. I do. I like to just. I I like to sing. I make up way more songs than I use. For me, the issue is which ones to leave the house with. Sometimes I'll leave the house with one and be and really be sorry. As soon as I start singing it in front of somebody else, I'm like, oh, stop. Well, I was like just listening to, uh, uh, what is it, Stuck in the Middle on Peace Queer? Is that is that? Yeah. 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 And, and, I mean, you're totally channeling, uh, you know, this sort of uh, social strata lifestyle that's, I know, not your lifestyle. Right. And, but, you know, it's really you know sounds real and also it you know it does what i i i I just you know admire greatly which is your ability to mix humor and philosophy kind of just all it almost melds into one somehow oh man thank you uh but um uh that that to me is like uh, some of your uh like Right there, I mean, how would how do you like? Let's just talk about that song. How do you channel into that guy that you know dealing with Mr. Handelman? Right. So that song in particular, I went to the Taco Bell, and there was a guy in front of me in this wicked sweet car. Um, I don't know car names, but you could tell this was like a nice one, and he had a nice outfit on, and um, because I could see he was like he was angry at whoever gave him the tacos and i was behind him i can't i couldn't imagine what could have gone so wrong with a fucking taco you know or what how this guy could have gotten so worked up and then when i got to go get my taco i look in it's just a high school kid that had that had angered this man so and so as i'm driving home i'm thinking what kind of day first of all you you have a nice suit and a nice car so what kind of day did you have that makes you turn on the taco bell kid like that uh-huh and then it's like i start thinking well whatever this guy's doing to get these things that he has it's it, it's turning him into a dick so what's the point if you have jet skis if none of your friends you know it's like if all the people that use them hate you you know or like because you're so pissed off, you're the angry inch, you know, and and I started thinking, wonder what wonder what led to that? Like what happened to that guy today? He looks like he's doing fine. Why why is he mad about a taco? And then I started <laughs> <laughs> I started picturing what his day might have been like. And I was like, maybe some guy got the promotion he wanted and then told him he was gonna have to really buck up. I just started picturing what 
you know, what kind of demeaning life, even if you're like an executive, it can be really demeaning and your kids aren't satisfied. And I just thought, is this is what, you know, these guys, I just, in my mind, I was like, so he just took all that out on the Taco Bell kid. And now he's going to go home and, you know, do what? I don't know what those kind of guys do. You know, now I have to call that little pecker, Mr. Handelman. Drove home from work as mad as I had ever been in there. Nearly took the kid out of a drive-through window. He said, will that be everything? I said, hey, what would you know? You're looking at a man about to buy his kid a rag top. What are you driving? A bicycle, you little punk. I'm stuck on the corner. So, uh, you, uh, this is an overused word, so please indulge me here, but you've really become, uh, as a songwriter, uh, a conduit between John Prine and, say, Jason Isbell, and um, you, uh, how does that mentor-mentee thing transfer, like, within your lifetime, you know, I mean, where you go from being the, 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 mentee and 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 become more of a mentor yeah i don't i don't know if anyone sees me as a mentor like i i john helped me a lot john just um john just john just was a generous person and like just knocked the dumb sunglasses off me you know he just told me some shit i needed to hear when i needed to hear it but uh, then like Jason and Amanda, sometimes I feel like I'm their kid, you know, they're, they're a little more together than me. Jason's a sturdy fucker, man. I, like the night I met him was, I was working on agnostic hymns and he reminded me of Prine. And then by the time that night was over, I was asking him to help me with this, this recording. And then I heard some of them Southeastern songs and I was like, look out, man. Then I married him. And then I do know all a lot of the the younger singers. I you know, I I'm you know you like I think of like when I came along, you were you were incredibly kind to me, took me everywhere, and and treated me great, and, and I just try to pass it on like you like that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I like that sort of tradition, like I liked it when I met you and you were nice to me. I liked it when I met Jerry Jeff or one of anybody like that, and they were nice to me, and it felt like a, a, a sort of a family-ish fraternal order. Yeah. Well, I, if, if I may, I, I, one of my favorite uh, moments when we worked together was at Tipitina's in New Orleans, and <laughs> it was packed. I mean, I think it holds like a, you know a total of eight fifty, and there are about nine hundred and fifty people in there, and they're just stuffed and. I went to you and you were, you're like, man, there's not two people in here that are here to see me. I'd say, I, on the contrary, I think about half these people are here to see you. And you're like, no, no, no. And I said, <laughs> okay, Todd, whatever. And you, you get up there and you played, uh, uh, they call me the breeze, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then you set the guitar down and said, then for my uh, next number, I need a member, a volunteer from the audience. Yeah. And you walked off the stage, down the ramp out the side door, got in your van and drove back to Nashville <laughs> and people I, were running all over the place going, where's Todd? Where's Todd? I go, how the fuck should I know? <laughs> I disappeared. Yeah. 
<laughs> and then when I asked you about it later, you said, I always wanted to do that, man. I yeah, was like, I did. <laughs> I did. And that was, I had a set list that said, call me the breeze and then magic trick. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a force of nature Let's talk about, uh, you know, performing. Um, and, and I do sometimes like say when I uh, intro, uh, play a train song, uh, I'll say, uh, if you've never seen Todd Snyder, don't don't miss a chance to see Todd. And uh, because he's probably one of about four people that I know that was actually truly born for the stage. And, uh-huh. and you'll see all kinds of crazy people on stage, but they don't they don't know what the stage is about and they don't have that natural inclination for the stage. And. Uh, you know, no one does it better than you do. And so I was thinking about, you know, how you have this legacy of great songs and how you manage your set list. Cause I, you know, other than that one, you just explained about the call me the breeze and magic trick, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've never really paid any attention to your set list. You know? Right. I do. You want to know, here's something. This does not sound as stoner as, a, as a, you'd think, but I have a, like a notebook that's turned into like a website. So wherever I am, about an hour before the show, I'll put some music on and um, start kind of getting into it, make some coffee. And um, then they'll, they'll, Brian, who works on the road with me, will put all the set lists, like the last, like say if I'm in St. Louis, he'll show me all three of the last St. Louis shows and all the stories that get told in there too. Um, so I'll remember, and then I'll just say, okay, I don't want to repeat any of this shit, and then I'll make a set list based on that. Yeah. And then sometimes I abort the set list if I just feel like going another way. If you feel like going the other, if you do, you, do you switch horses in midstream sometimes on a show? Um, yeah. When when you're when you're playing and thinking this this next song's not going to fly or. Uh, I need to bump it up or I need to back off some, you know, that kind of thing. All that. Yeah. And just trying to also channel my own like, um, mood. I'm friends with that Richard Lewis, you know, the comedian He's a legend and he has been, you know, one of the things I got into that jam thing for was cause I wanted to, um, learn, like I was, it sounds crazy, but I wanted to see if I could apply any of that, um, improv jam shit to the way I talk, you know? And then, and Richard Lewis also was helping me. I was like, I want to see, I would like to just improv a little. So sometimes like in the last couple of years, I've had a few nights where I just walk out there and like, don't throw the first punch. I'm just like, I just stand there until I get a feeling and then I just follow it, you know? I had a dream where you came to see me. You asked if I was okay. That's how I knew that I was dreaming. You asked if I was okay. This is the last time, the very last 
need to ask you a, a, a thing about your, your storytelling. And I got this from your book as well, Todd, um, that you uh, really spend some time uh, working out these stories in advance uh, where, and, and you do it so well that it seems, you know, it just seems like you're just standing up there riffing, but, um, and, and uh, somewhere else in the book, it says that you sort of do about 50, 50. And I was wondering what the difference is as far as like um, uh, how you, how, how you write it down and, and bring it to the stage or how you just, you know, when you just go up there and, and you know, impromptu riff, you know, that's right. That's, yeah. Uh-huh. Like I, like I walk a lot and when I'm walking, I'll be think, telling myself this like stories and sort of working it up. And then, um, I, then I'll start just telling it and it usually evolves after that. Jimmy Buffett taught me this thing a long time ago about, um, um, it, it, he was basically saying, um, uh, how did he say it? Like, he showed me these little storytelling tricks that are hard to explain, but it, it reminded me of what some of those jam guys said. It's like, if just sort of know the end, I guess. Or And usually the end is the song so that you're coming to. So I, I, I tend to just uh, talk about the song, I guess. You know Ramblin' Jack Elliott, though? Oh, he's oh, yeah. he's oh, the what? master. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, like Guy Clark used to say, uh, they don't call him rambling because uh, <laughs> he travels, right? Yeah, because he travels, right? Exactly. Yeah. He can really, he can really do like every sort of uh, parlor trick. I mean, he's a genuine fucking guy, but also if there's any sort of Catskillian shit that you can lay on some people, he knows how to do it. You know. I like all that crap. But. So, yeah, I would, you know, the, the other thing was fascinating is I have threatened, I'm just too lazy really, but I've threatened to, you know, write some of the stories down. And I don't know, I don't think I have some of the chops that you do to bring it to the stage. Once it's written, I, I always, if, if I even kind of scratch out something, it feels like it comes off stiff, you know, and there's that need right. to be like right on the edge with a story, you know, really right. right there on the edge. And, and uh, I, and me being on the edge is like really me being on the edge, right? But <laughs> I, there is there, oh, my 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 best friend Duckworth used to say, you know, he's he's always he's been a pain in the ass my whole life. But he he says, you know, when you start telling those stories, which are okay sometimes, uh, he says, it's like you reach out from the apple tree and you're on the trunk there, and you're reaching out for a big beautiful red apple, and you come back with a raisin and i'm like ah thanks man yeah yeah i have i have those have come back with the raisin oh yeah yeah god and one time i was in pittsburgh and i started playing this song called easy money and someone yelled out you've played that already and some other guy said twice whoa yeah i guess you ever get that burned out No, but I did some shows with Jesse Winchester one time where he got through about five songs and yeah. he literally started the set with the stories and the songs exactly the same. Oh, God damn. And that was that one weird. And I love Jesse. And and I and I just and it was just freak. And I was in the audience. I went with I went with uh, Barry Poss from Sugar Hill Records. And and it just we just kept looking at each other. And says, He's not really doing this. And Jeez! Yeah, what, like a tick, like a Willis Allen tick. Yeah, 
It was pretty, pretty, pretty crazy. So uh, back to a little bit about the songs. Um, Man, how many people have recorded your songs, Todd? I mean, uh, other than, you know, a lot, you know, a lot of just independence that I might not be able to find. I mean, but you've got uh, a pretty huge catalog of people that there's a bunch you know ingram a bunch uh-huh. um uh mark chestnut was one um i forget there's a bunch though right you know? no gary, gary really allen the did, single did, yeah, yeah he called the record all right guy yeah right yeah that was a good one i'm trying to think of some others um yeah i love that when i get a, a song cut you did one you did the train song that yeah. just meant the world to me you know yeah yeah still do it all the time and uh you know always gets a great reaction so that's my love, maybe my favorite one love that song love that song well i mean that has great meaning to you right about skip litz right yeah he yeah. was uh my brother man and uh-huh. and uh i just I, he was a he was a song and it was uh-huh. so funny as soon as he died that song just fell out of me like it was already done right huh that, that's that's funny you say that because you know when I I just decided to do that song on a record because I just I didn't I don't know if I just woke up one day but you know metaphorically I just woke up one day and picked up the guitar and I could play the whole song without even looking at a lyric and I was just like, oh wow how did that happen you know it just, just, just totally made, yeah. just sunk in you know it was just damn yeah now you made my year. Malcolm Gladwell <laughs> stick thing or whatever, whatever you know. So there's a cool story in the book about uh, Garth Brooks and then uh, that song, All Right Guy. And do you know, uh, I'd just like you to dispel this or clear it up for me. I heard almost that same story except for uh, it was about Tomorrow Never Comes, I think. Yeah. Right. But it was yeah. the, you know, he, he sent you some money because he cut. Tomorrow Never Comes, which is like a Tony Arama song or something, right? Yeah, no. Here's the, the okay, so for starters, when he was doing the Chris Gaines record, um, he recorded All Right Guy and, and, and almost put it on the record, and then it didn't make it. Like, it was one of the last ones cut off the record. And for, for that, he sent me 10000 bucks, unheard of. You wow. know, you, no. you know, that's unheard of. And so, and also I really, really liked him. I almost, I was really impressed with the way he treated everybody and the artistic way he was coming at his recordings. Um, it wasn't what I had expected from like the media or whatever. Um, and then, and then years later, I came up with that beer run song and then about a couple years after that, he gets a beer run song. And um, and I know for a fact that he didn't take it from, from me, but I ran into that uh, 
Kent Blasey at a Tom T. Hall thing. And we just joked about it. It was, it was no big thing. But then I turned it into a story at the uh, show where I say, and this isn't true. I mean, it's slightly true, I guess, but we knew that we hadn't, he hadn't taken anything from me and I hadn't taken anything from him. But I, as I was, um, you know, he wrote, if tomorrow never comes, uh, Blazy did. And so I, as, as I was, um, leaving that thing that night, I thought, well, if he did take beer and I guess I could take, take if tomorrow never comes. And, um, but he didn't, I just knew I had a funny, uh, you know, it's like, um, I had this song if tomorrow never comes. And I think, um, I don't even know which came first, the story or the thing. Was, but it was like we were joking around about beer run at that thing. And then later maybe I got this idea that I could make up a song called If Tomorrow Never Comes. But that's it, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I told that story, and I think it's on a live record. Ah, there it goes. S yeah. Slips, sli slips into the ether there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, I, did, I didn't feel ripped off by anybody. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, you know, it's a huge waste of time. I want to say, you know, I mean, um, like uh, Fred Smith used to say, "We all burrow." And I was burrow, like, okay. yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't care. Burrow. Yeah, if if the guy said to me, "I I did take that from you," um, and I think he did say they'd heard it, but I I wouldn't give a shit. Mine wasn't mine wasn't uh, commercial. Mine was about you. Mine's about you. <laughs> <laughs> There's no commercial value in that one, man. <laughs> I'll tell you that. A couple of frat guys from Abilene drove out all night to see Robert Earl Keane at the K-Pig Swine and Soiree Dance. They wore baseball caps and khaki pants. They wanted cigarettes, so to save a little money, they bumped one off this hippie that smelled kind of funny. And the next thing they knew, they was both really hungry and pretty thirsty, too. B-double-E-double-R-U-N, bear B-double-E-double-R-U-N, bear All we need is a ten and a fiver, a car and a key and an able driver. B-double-E-double-R-U-N, bear We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with Todd Snyder shortly. At Americana Podcast, it is our longstanding goal to explore music, and Americana music in particular, through all of its phases. With help from our good friend, local music connoisseur, and as of this episode, music historian, the well-worded Will Vote, this is Will's Pick. All Along the Watchtower by Bob Dylan from his record, John Wesley Harding. In an earlier pick, Will made the case that the band's second album, aka the Brown album, which was released in 1969, could be considered the first Americana album. Under further reflection, he is now rolling back the clock to 1967 and the release of Bob Dylan's eighth studio album, John Wesley Harding, which is his candidate for the honor. Bob Dylan's career was at a crossroad in late 1967. He had not played music in public since 1966, and it had been 18 months since the release of Blonde on Blonde, which successfully captured what he described as his thin, wild, mercury sound. Dylan had been woodshedding with the band in upstate New York, writing and playing songs that reconnected him to his earliest influences in roots and folk music. Although none of the songs from the basement at Big Pink made it onto his record, 
The inspirations from those sessions are clearly found on John Wesley Harding. 1967 was the high point of psychedelic rock and was dominated by big, fully produced albums like the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's, Rolling Stone's Satanic Majesty's Request, Cream's Disraeli Gears, to name a few. The charts were dominated by these big, loud rock bands. Against that musical background, Bob Dylan turned up in Nashville to record John Wesley Harding in October of 1967. With a studio band that included only Kenny Buttrey on drums, Charlie McCoy on bass, and Pete Drake on pedal steel for the last two tracks. Twelve songs were recorded in three quick sessions. Many of these new compositions clocked in at less than three minutes and not one included a chorus or anything that could be considered a hook. Nevertheless, to many fans and critics, this is Dylan's most perfectly executed album, an album whose austerity and directness and lyric and sound captured the essence of Americana before it was even recognized as a genre. With fewer words than usual, Dylan's stark ballads tell the tales that are steeped in rural agrarian culture. Filled with biblical references and sly jokes, these stories include a cast of American characters who populate a land far from any big city. Opening the record is the tale of John Wesley Harden, a Texas outlaw and a gunslinger. From there, he sings about Drifter's escape, a lonesome hobo, and the unscrupulous landlord, among others. All are people who are caught in situations that speak to bigger themes in life. It is the set of the original songs that support Will's claim that this album is the beginning of a new genre known as Americana. The standout song from John Wesley Harding, which was made famous by the Jimi Hendrix cover, is All Along the Watchtower. Beginning with a blast of harmonica over acoustic guitar strums, Dylan sings, There must be some kind of way out of here, said the Joker to the thief. There's too much confusion here, I can't get no relief. Which leads to three short verses of darkness and menace, and then the nihilistic final lines. Outside in the distance, a wild cat did growl. Two riders were approaching, the wind began to howl. It is a song that is as haunting today as it was 50 years ago, thus making it Will's Pick. Outside in the distance, a wild cat did growl. Two riders were approaching, the wind began to howl. Uh, so you know uh, we can't can't go on without talking about you. Um, I, I guess you're doing some streaming now with the uh, oh yeah the, the pandemic raging. You know oh I mean? yeah I'm dominating the stream game. Yeah yeah yeah. That's you know good. what <laughs> we I have this purple building. It's where I am now. This is purple building right in the middle of East Nashville where I keep all my crap. Uh huh. And we got. And I'm an arthritic guy, you know, so eventually I won't probably be able to tour as much as I used to. And so we've been thinking, we were thinking about doing the stream thing. Anyway, I had been getting gear like lights and cameras and crap. And, um, and right when the pandemic hit, we were like, well, shit, we, we were already ready to do it. And, and, um, so we started, I think the first week and I've done every Sunday. I really dig it too. It's like a a cross between a show and a radio visit and a recording session, you know. I really uh, get into So it. what's 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 the name of it? It's called the First Agnostic Church of Hope and Wonder. <laughs> <laughs> Where we're always hoping for something and wondering what the fuck. <laughs> and I got a new record I'm calling that too. I made it here in the same building. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I made a new album. I play everything. I'm like the Prince Nelson Riley of 
Uh, so <laughs> there, yeah. there is, a, and and it goes on Sundays, huh? Yeah, and I sell certificates to it. What? So wait sad. a minute. What? And also, I sell jars with sunshine in them. <laughs> <laughs> but you can't if you open them. That's your business, you know. Then I can't, I can't be held accountable for what happens to the ray after you've opened it. <laughs> <laughs> so it says do not open right there on the jar. And what do you get for a jar of sunshine? <laughs> what do we what, what do we get for a jar of sunshine? You know, you know, like six bucks, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It yeah. takes a couple hours to harvest. Well. You gotta put the jars out. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody's tried to bring one back yet. And there's been no G Men, G Men revenues too. <laughs> no, no, yeah. no, no white lightning <laughs> problems right there. Nope. So, uh, so the show lasts what? What? What do you do? Sundays and yeah, and, an hour. Like, yeah, a little over an hour. Sometimes if I get you know going and forget, and then the day Jerry Jeff died, I did like a couple of hours. I just did all of his song. I just kept doing his songs. I could have gone on and on. Um, and and then about five weeks ago, I started this thing where. I just like I did my first record and my second record. And now like this weekend I'm doing East Nashville Skyline all the way through. I'm on my sixth one. So Man. I'm gonna do all my records just uh -huh. solo and tell the stories behind the songs. Yeah. Oh wow. That's A lot of the songs I'm tired of, but I just say that. It's like this one I'm not into, but <laughs> <laughs> or like this chick turned out to be uncool, but song's still good. I know I get wild. Speaking of it, uh, so songs about uh, 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 chicks or women or girls, um, man, I always thought one of the you know your masterpieces is, and I'm sorry, I don't know the title, but is it an American something about the the cop comes to the door and says, yeah, just like old times, just like old times. Yeah, that, man, kills me. That one kills. Thank me. Thank you. I worked on that one for so long, yeah. and then. Um, and now there's a movie uh, based on the song. I think no it kidding. just came out. Yeah. And there's an actor in it that all my friends know who he is. He came um, <laughs> and followed me around. He came on the road and followed me around. And then they show me the movie and he acts like a dick. Oh, no way. Really? Yeah. I'm like, was that what I was doing? <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah. So he, who is the actor? Do you guys know who the actor is? No. It was, I didn't believe it was real. When the guy came to my house to ask me about it, I, I told him I I told him I thought he was full of shit. Uh -huh. And I just, I didn't buy it. But yeah. I just couldn't, I just didn't see why some guy who made movies would drive to my house. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I just thought it was probably someone who liked folk singing or something. Yeah. And, but then it turned out it was real. And I saw the movie. Uh, 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 Prine, was, Prine was there. He saw it. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, the guy comes off as like this reckless, um, you know, um, 
kind of a goof or whatever, but right. <laughs> you know, they just they just put, they just act and get them acting all wasted or something. Sa- same title, the movie. It's called a Hard Luck Love Song. I like that. Might be one of my favorite songs. That's kind of true. That song. Yeah. In a yeah. way, yeah. I was I was putting. I made my character a pool shark instead of a singer just because mm-hmm. I had so many songs where the guy's a singer already. Right. So I just was like, I'm a pool player. And there was a girl I grew up with that was, that was a, um, you know, that had an ad in the scene. Yeah. And I'd known her that she always had the same ad. So I, anytime I'd bounce around from town to town, if I'd see that, I'd be looking through the weekly scene and I'd see this one ad and I knew that was the girl from Beaverton. So I'd call her and she'd come hang out, you know. Uh-huh. But, uh, and so one night the cops came and it was clear that, like, well, this is a shitty hotel. She's clearly a hooker and I'm clearly a crappy guy. But uh, I've known this girl since she was a kid, you know. Right. And he he bought it. I didn't really have a picture of her in my wallet to show the guy, but I was like, no, that. I mean, I'm sure. That's why I said I remember saying to him, "I'm sure she is, but that's not all she is." And that's when I thought um, I would make a song about this girl that I. I was like, uh, you know, I, it, it's probably true that she went to that hotel sometimes to to do that. But on that particular occasion, we were just drinking wine and catching up. Yeah, and when she, that chokes me up a little. And then when she heard the song, she was really mad. Really? And she, yeah. And she, she thought that people were going to find out. And then she went to a show, and there's a line in one of the, in the song where the cop lets us go. And um, the crowd cheers. And yeah. she, that made her, like, all this, that, that changed the game for her. She loved the song. She didn't, ah. think, the, she didn't think people were going to root for us. Yeah, I mean, didn't you just tell her that that's what we live for is the cheering? I mean, yeah, jeez, <laughs> you wouldn't do something to get not cheered for. Yeah, right. <laughs> we could just sit here and talk all night if that big old guy out in the car don't mind. Like old times, a screw off a top on a bottle of wine, living out a different kind of American dream. was always the same as mine you didn't want to throw a fish in line in that old mainstream I'm a, i have a couple of questions about americana music um just straightforward uh, would you consider yourself an americana artist hmm, i guess i i more think of myself as a folk singer or like uh-huh. a busker type of, of a guy like a ramblin jack but americana like, um, I mean, anytime they have a car wash, they, they want me to come help, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then you feel like you have to go, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I got, I acted out at the trophy thing a few years ago. You did? Yeah. I got into it with the stage manager uh-huh. on account of him being a dick. <laughs> 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 I like, I guess I, I like, I like the radio stations. You know, I like we're traveling around and going to Americana stations and those DJs around the country, like the ones K-Pig started, I think. Right. 
Well, here on Americana Podcast, we're really just trying to, you know, define and expand the whole genre as much as possible and just get people's thoughts about it as far as like, you know, what, you know, what they consider Americana and, and how, how it works for them. Do you have someone that you would consider, an, you know, the quintessential Americana artist? I may say, you know, um, you know, if you, if you, oh, that's a cool, like, you like current, you mean? Well, you know, living or dead, actually. Yeah. Know. Well, like I say, I, sometimes I feel like Graham Parsons or Willie uh-huh. and Waylon, they sort of get the credit for uh, creating this sort of um, um, hippie side of country music, which uh-huh. is really what I fell for was that. And, right. um, and then like Guy and, and uh, Towns uh-huh. and that and you, James McMurtry. I mean, I like being, and I don't mean to be negative about it either. I've had some fun at those, that the award thing. I met Billy Bob Thornton at that thing. And right. I think I've been nominated for some of them and sang. Um, uh, you know, and I like it. I, I like that um, we got, we have a, a genre or whatever. I remember when we used to just have that magazine, No Depression. Uh-huh. My, my my old drummer, Mark Patterson, you remember him, I'm sure. But yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Mark Patterson says, they should call that magazine No Comma Depression. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Yeah. <laughs> like the I answer to, to think that too. <laughs> Do you suffer from anxiety? No. <laughs> depression. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> and it was that way. I'll tell you, though, the Jayhawks, remember them? And like, yeah. Uh, yeah. All those cats, um, you know, it's I, I do like that kind of music. It's always been the kind, like, anywhere from Taj Mahal to... Mm-hmm. You know, um, to what's that guy from Led Zeppelin? You know, he, you uh, know, Robert Plant. Yeah, mm-hmm. that guy. He's badass. Yeah. I saw him at that award show not long ago, yeah. or even Loretta Lynn. Uh-huh. I call it unsuccessful country music in general, or at least that's how it started. <laughs> <laughs> but now it's really broadening out, I guess. Hear that screaming uh, even after all of these years. I keep hearing keep hearing well, There's a battlefield on fire, on water, by water, with them flames coming higher with fire. I can't at least two hours or more. Keep hearing keep hearing off of that old. All right, Todd. Uh, so we're going to move on to the light, lighter side. This is the lighter side of the program. Which, <laughs> yeah. Which is, this, this, these are just you know kind of odds and ends sort of thing. You know, we yeah. we can almost think about it like a you know a TV game show or something. But it just you know the last book you read. Yeah. Okay. What was the last book I read? Hondo, my father, by yeah. Becky Crouch Patterson. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and it was the second time. I read it once before about 20 years ago. Uh-huh. But with Jerry Jeff passing, I've, he, you know, you know that guy, Hondo. Sure, yeah, sure. Uh, Lukenbach. Yeah. yeah, sure. I just felt like he played such a big role in, in whatever that was that happened in Austin. He, his, uh-huh. uh, his, 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 uh, his spirit played such a big role. I never knew him, but I knew, do you know Colonel Bruce Hampton? I do. I mean, you know, I I've met I met him a few times. I was at a few things with him before. Yes. He he's a sort of a Hondoy Willie type kind of guy. Well, he was before he passed away at his own gig. 
on stage. Right. Pat, oh, he did. He's yeah. One of the, he's one of those where you're scrolling through your computer and it says artists who have died on stage. You yeah. Know, and, yeah. He's and then all of a sudden one. you get, you, then you all of a sudden you're buying, buying some uh, Cialis or something, you know? Like, yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, that is exactly what happened to me. <laughs> Uh, uh, so, uh, let, let's say, uh, okay. Uh, favorite hobby or pastime other than music gardening. Yeah. Really? I'm a flower gardener. Yeah. I get real into making roses and, um, lantanas and, um, uh-huh. that's mostly what I do. I get, like, I have a, a garden at the house that I get into and that's huh. about it. Other than that, I just do music. Yeah. Have you ever had a nickname? Oh yeah, the load. Um, when I was a, when I was always borrowing everything, but also the tipsy gypsy and um, the what? The tipsy gypsy. The tipsy gypsy. <laughs> God, that uh, sounds like a you know, like a some kind of one of those stop action cartoons or something, you know? Right, <laughs> or like a store you'd get a dream catcher at. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think. I don't really know if I've had it. Uh oh yeah, when the when I was in the hard working Americans, they called me the Blind Lemon Pledge. Nice. And then I play around town sometimes under the name Elmo Buzz. Like I'll oh. play little bars in East Nashville. Mm-hmm. I have a band called Elmo Buzz and the East Side Bulldogs. And so then when when I do that, people call me the Buzz. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I like, that. I like that one. I, you know, uh, you played that Blue Note in uh, Missouri before Columbia, Missouri, right? Yeah, for they sure. Used to, they used one time, it was only one time I saw this, but across the alley, well, we played there together, I think, one time. Because yeah. I remember we got in that little uh spat with that guy that was trying to find out if willie nelson was in that bus oh and, yeah and you kept just drawing him out it was so brilliant it was so great the guy was like uh, uh do you know if the bus stops here is this a bus stop and uh no it's not really a bus stop well what's that bus doing there and then you said well uh, you know we can't tell you because <laughs> you know that we're just we're just not at liberty to say but you you know who he is yeah. And then the guy keeps going on and then he finally says something like You're fucking with me, man. And you go you go, You think this is a fucking butt stop? Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Who's fucking with who here? That was yeah. so great. Was, that was a great moment, Todd. <laughs> I love going on tours with you, man. And you've been so nice, you take me everywhere. That has helped me so much. And then that thing we did with Bruce was so yeah. fun. Remember when I gave him those pot cookies and he didn't know that that's what they were? Oh, <laughs> oh, oh the humanity. <laughs> okay, more of the lighter that. side. All, okay. More of the lighter side. All-time favorite movie. Uh, where the Buffalo Roam, where oh. where um, Bill Murray plays Hunter Thompson. Yeah, yeah, that that one you mentioned in the book, don't you? That's right. Yeah, it's and kind you of still like watch, a and you still watch it all the time. Wow! And I have the script too. I, I bought it, and I don't really go for movies much. That's kind of the only one I watch. Um, that movie, and I watch that show Flipper, mm-hmm. and that's pretty much it. So, uh, have you ever been? Have you been back to Tillamook County? Yeah, I have. Yeah. 
I have, and uh, they the guy, the sheriff, is my friend. I w- okay. I w- about two years after I got arrested, I realized what I was why I was wrong. At first, I was really thought that they that they had thrown the book at me for no reason, but now I kind of get it. But that guy, every year, he gets a bunch of copies of that record for Christmas and gives them out to people. How cool! How cool. Yeah, I love that town, and they were nice to me in jail. What artist would you consider? What, what artist would people people be surprised that that you listen to? Oh, oh yeah, um, Parliament. Uh huh. Yeah, Parliament. George Clinton. I love George Clinton. Ah, yeah. Or, or like um, Booker T and the MGs. Is is something I love. Uh-huh. Um, let's see. What? Yeah, that, I love that question. Um, yeah. I like just about anything, man. I, I listen to almost anything. Right. Punk my, punk music never uh, got me too much. I like all the earrings and the funny hair, but I, I never understood the, the, the tunes. I'm kind of... <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's good. I kind of like it when people boogie more than when they just go... You know, and then nice. and then yell at me about whatever. That's the only one, but anything else I dig. Well, I did my best, but as you might have guessed, it's a tough test not to fail. I'm sitting here waiting in the Tillamook County Jail. One phone call to Tylenol for cold gray walls closing in. If I ever do get out. On that highway again, I ain't ever going back to Tillamook County. Well, the lightning round, these are just pretty much either or questions, okay? Okay. And I know it seems silly, but, you know, indulge me a little bit here. You ready? Yeah. Yeah. Sox or Yankees? Ooh, Yankees. Titans or Patriots? Titans. Tammy Wynette or Loretta? Loretta. Yeah, I knew that one. (laughs) Memphis or Knoxville? Memphis. Catering or buyout? Buyout. Mozart or Beethoven? Mm. Millions of dollars in prizes here. Okay, there you you go. Merle or Buck? Merle. Bowie or Freddie Mercury? Ooh, Bowie. Yeah. Donuts or beignets? Uh Uh-oh. Oh, I know what a beignet is. That's at that place in New Orleans. Uh, right, right. Yeah, right. Cafe Du Monde. Yeah, Oh, correct. beignets. Yeah, yeah, those. Those are... I, those are I got an order of beignets there the last time I was there. Had the, you know, I got like the, you know, the family order for just me. And I'm eating on them. And these three guys are in, next to me. They finish theirs. And the guy turns around and goes... Hey, you're gonna eat all those beignets? I said, <laughs> "You damn right, I'm gonna eat all of them." He was just about reaching for one at that time. So. Yeah. Uh, analog or digital? Analog. Reverb or tremolo? Tremolo. Turnaround or modulation? Oh God, this is good. Uh, turnaround. All right. Stacks or Motown? Stacks. All right. Um, Ramones or Sex Pistols? Ramones. Stand-up comedy or physical comedy? Stand-up comedy. Although, man, it's hard not to laugh when somebody gets 
<laughs> Falls down some stairs. Yeah, God. Remember the Three's Company? That guy was always walking into the door. Yeah. Hard, hard <laughs> Other not people's to misfortune is always but, a joy. Yeah. But yeah, I'd say a, a stand up, though. Yeah, great. All right. Uh, last one on this meet and greet or wearing wastelets. Oh, God damn. That is two, t- two tough ones. <laughs> God, I might, I might, I might feel better about the wastelet. I have a hard time meeting people after the show. Never goes well for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the meet and greets. I always, I always tank those somehow. Yeah, you know, just to fill in everyone, we're talking to Todd Snyder, and wastelets is a, kind of an explanation in his book about. Well, I guess you don't really, you didn't really formally meet Slash, did you? It was kind uh-uh. of. A, it was we, kind of like, we sat like five feet from each other and, and got drunk, uh-huh. and didn't say anything to the, the waitress. The girl behind the bar was the only other person in there, and she'd talked to him a little bit, and then, but. I never said anything to either of them, but then when I got up to leave, he told me to take it easy. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I still, I'm still doing it. And the wastelets. He are, had a, he had like eight of them. But they're, they're like bracelets around your waist, waist. right? Yeah, yeah, like a concho, you know those concho yeah. ones, oh, yeah. just yeah. a bunch of different kinds. And the only shorts he had on were like those uh, Richard Simmons type. That's all he had, like Woo. those Richard Simmons shorts, and then jewelry. Australian football shorts. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah and then yeah. anklets, bracelet, waistlet, necklace, earrings, and and just a cig and all that hair. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. Guns I, and roses. I, I sat in, in uh, Sunset at this little Chinese restaurant one time, and the only two people were me and Martin Landau. And so I always told people that I ate lunch with Martin Landau. Oh, no. Did you say anything? No. <laughs> I try not to. Too. One time I walked past Greg Brady and I thanked him. For the oh, years nice. Of joy. You thanked him. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Nice. Yes. Yeah. All right. So, one last question. Uh, yeah. Todd, Todd Snyder here, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Robert Rokin. You listen to Americana Podcast, the 51st State. And we're going to take it out of here with this question, Todd. We at Americana Podcast are really thinking that it's a crime that the, the, um, the beautiful instrument, the B3, doesn't have a better name instead of this kind of military-sounding B3 yeah. name. So um, I wonder if you could, uh, you know, contribute to uh, yes, a, for, come up with a new name for us. Yeah, it's not like a bomber, is it? It's more <laughs> like a, uh, uh, you know, like a pad, uh, you know, like a, oh, yeah. What are they going to call that thing? You know, I don't know. That's a good one. You use B3s, one. don't you, when you play, right? I do sometimes. I yeah. like, especially on records, you know. Yeah. Um, I like to use them like when the chorus comes and just make a nice pad that people can hardly hear. Yeah. Sometimes like that. I the can't wait pad. for you to hear the new thing I did. I play all the instruments except for the drum kit. And the title of that is? The First Agnostic Church of Hope oh, and Wonder. There, there you go. Great. Great. Yeah, we'll we'll look for that, and that follows up your uh, streaming show that you do on Sundays. Right? Yeah, yeah, All it's right. kind of inspired by. I, I I made the whole thing up since we've been home, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And we started doing our show on Sunday, and then people started calling it a church, and I started making up songs about about it, you know. Yeah. Hey, it's been a pleasure, Todd. I, I really I enjoyed talking with you. It's fun to kind of go over some old times and and uh, you know and and get your insight on you know everything from songwriting to uh, water buffaloes. So, <laughs> well, I I'm always really love being around you, and uh, I'm honored to be talking to you, and can't wait till I see you again. And yeah, just thank you. All right. Love to the whole family out there. All right, thanks a lot, Todd. Thanks, brother. time we would like to thank our host robert earl Keane, brian kincaid and our guest todd snyder americana podcast is brought to you by Keane productions and american songwriter produced and edited by clara rose with original music by kim warner until next time let the music play